Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network, Science and Technology and Societies. I'm Patrick Slaney, um, and today I'm talking to Lawrence Bush, the author of Standards, Recipes for Reality. So as Lawrence reminds us, standards are all around us, governing things like seating arrangements, medicine, experimental objects and subjects, and even romance novels uh, in his book. In Standards, Recipes for Reality, Bush provides a wide-ranging and accessible analysis of the ways that standards structure the world. More than simply providing a typology of standards, Bush shows the ways that the impetus to standardization and standardized differentiation have transformed as part of political and historical changes. Under contemporary neoliberalism, the drive to standardization has generated sophisticated relationships between standards, certified professional bodies, and accrediting agencies, relationships that Bush provides the resources for thinking about politically. Using plenty of accessible and insightful examples, and clearly in contact with much of the literature in science and technology studies, Bush's book is a great read and a great entry into thinking about technoscience, power, and neoliberalism. Give it a read. Hi, Larry. Hi there. How are you today? I'm very good. Welcome to the New Books Network for Science, Technology, and Society. Thank you. Um, we're talking today about your book, Standards, Recipes for Reality. Uh, but before we get to the book, why don't you tell me a little bit about how about sort of who you are and how you came to think about this stuff? Okay. Um, I'm a professor on the faculty at Michigan State University in the sociology department. Uh, my background is in sociology, history, and economics. And uh, I sort of fell into this. I was doing some STS-type work about roughly 15 years ago with a graduate student. We were wandering around in canola fields in uh, Canada, in, in Saskatchewan. And uh, we would go and ask people about the production of canola seed and canola as grain and canola as uh, cooking oil and so on. And invariably, people would say, well, you know, we have to do this according to the standards that are in place. And what we began to realize as we did more and more research is that this was a product that literally would not exist were it not for, as I recollect, roughly about 35 different kinds of standards. And uh, what we began to realize was that this whole area of standards production, standards enforcement, standards modification, uh, was largely undeveloped as a field of study, uh, although you could find huge amounts of literature about any particular kind of technical or uh, other standard that you couldn't find any, shall we say, overview of what standards were, why you needed them, uh, what they did, what they didn't do, and so on. And so for most of the last 15 years, I've been involved in something which is now called the Center for the Study of Standards and Society. Uh, and we've done, oh, probably more than a dozen research projects on various kinds of standards uh, in various different fields, initially starting with standards in the food and agricultural sector, because that's the area that I was most familiar with, 
uh, but more recently branching out into areas like nanotechnologies and uh, other areas. And a few years ago, a colleague of mine said, you know, um, you really ought to write a general book on this subject. And after he pushed that about five or six times, he finally convinced me that indeed there was a, a need for and a space for such a book. And that's what we're talking about today. Right. So so you, you sort of came to science, technology and society a little bit more recently, right? You weren't you weren't trained as a sociologist of science, were you? Well, there, there were very few programs when I, I mean, right. I'm, I'm 67. There, there weren't very many programs in that. Uh, I went to graduate school at Cornell where there was a small STS program and I knew some of the people in it, but it was just a program. It wasn't a department. You couldn't get a degree in it. Uh, it was just a, a handful of courses. Yeah. Uh, so yes, like most people my age who are into, uh, STS stuff, uh, we got into it by falling into it rather than making a conscious decision early on in our careers. Um, I like the way in the book, actually, that you're very kind of aware of the, the uh, sort of the theoretical discussions going on in um, the STS literature and the sociology of science literature, but you make them very accessible. So I think that was a real achievement on your part. Um, why don't we uh, get right to the book? Um, and you, you start the book with you know, fantastic examples of how pervasive um, and ubiquitous standards and standardized things are around us. Um, and to take the, the subtitle of your book seriously, um, Recipes for Reality, why do you think it's so important to take um, standards as constitutive of reality? This, why is that important to recognize that role? Well, because I think that the, the tendency on the part of both the general public and even many practitioners who are in the business of producing or enforcing standards see standards as, as rather tedious, boring, technical things. And what I wanted to do in this book is to show that while you certainly can view them that way if you want to, uh, in fact, these are things that are reality creating. So, for example, uh, you might say that Standards as well as customary practices of various sorts, like shaking hands or saying hello, how are you, um, and, and legal frameworks, all constitute a fairly large portion of our world. And I mean constitute in a literal sense. If you wish, they're means by which we, we are governed. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, when I enter a classroom or a doctor's office, I usually don't need to worry about whether the seat that I'm sitting in is going to hold my weight since it's been designed according to standards for precisely that purpose. And conversely, some standards restrict at least some of us from doing things we would like to do. So, for example, I'm six feet tall. Sitting in a coach seat on a long flight is is tolerable, but not not something I really enjoy. Um, On the other hand, if I was six foot ten, uh, there'd be literally no place for me to put my legs because the space between the seats has been standardized for people who are of, quote, average, mm-hmm. unquote, height. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To flip that around, though, I mean, one of the other things I think that you point out is, and that you just sort of mentioned, is that there hasn't been a book about standards, and this is an understudied topic. And I wonder if part of that is because standards are actually quite hard to talk about. What What makes them hard? talk about or to think about in in one of the the few books an edited book uh, by uh, Martha Lampland and Susan Lee Starr that came out a few years ago um, uh, they one of the things they talk about is precisely how 
standards are forms of infrastructure. They're, they're things that allow one to get on with the business at hand. They're very rarely, for most people, the actual business at hand. So, as I said, you know, if I, if I get on an airplane, I go and I find a seat, I sit on the seat, and I don't pay any attention to the literally tens of thousands of standards that were necessary to make that airplane flyable. And, uh, including, of course, standards for the seat itself and how far, how far back it should go and, and how the, uh, uh, seat belt should be placed and how much space between the seats and hundreds and hundreds of other, uh, technical things there that someone has decided upon. Usually it would take quite a bit of effort to find out who that someone was, but clearly someone did. Um, and those things shape almost everything we do in modern societies. So they're invisible pretty much until sort of we have a problem with them, right? And, then, and it's only then that we think about them a lot of the times, it seems like. That's right. If I sit there. on a chair and the stairs, chair starts to fall <laughs> apart, uh, I very quickly try and get up and regain my balance rather than falling on the floor. And the first thing I do is look at the chair and try to figure out, gee, why did this chair fall apart? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's when things go wrong that standards uh, become noticeable. Uh, yeah. As long as things run, run the way they're supposed to, we don't pay any attention to them. Yeah. One of the things that you do in the book is sort of, I think, methodologically refuse to distinguish between um, standards for people and standards for things. Um, and this resonates with a lot of sort of the approaches in the STS literature. But why do you think, I mean, what's the benefit of that kind of analytical approach? Well, if you look historically you can actually see two, uh, shall we say, groups of, of people involved in standards production and maintenance and, and enforcement. Um, you have people who are involved in, say, standards for health care and standards for education on the one hand, which are almost always about standards for people. Mm -hmm. And you have others who are interested in standards for screw threads or for USB ports or for other mechanical objects. And the assumption is these things don't have anything to do with each other. Yeah. But the point that I try to emphasize here is that you can't have standards for things without standards for people and vice versa. So, for example, um, standards for cell phones require that the people who make them meet certain standards. If you don't make if you don't meet those standards yeah. in making the phones, then the phones don't work. And they also require the people who use them to meet other standards. So, for example, if um, if uh, if I was uh, handicapped in the sense uh, that my fingers didn't work properly, I would have a great deal of difficulty in using most of the cell phones that are out there. The yeah. assumption is users are able to do that. Moreover, if I hit the buttons in the wrong order, the cell phone won't work for me. I must conform to the standard that, that's out there. So you can conceptually thought it, uh, sort out the standards for things and separate them from those from people, but you can't do it in practice. Yeah. I don't, do you remember the, um, I think one of the recent iterations of the iPhone had this issue with, uh, calls getting dropped because of where people were holding the iPhone, the, the iPhone. And this was a sort of a clear case where, you know, people, I think users expected the object to be standardized in a way that they could use it. But sort of Steve Jobs' and Apple's response was, no, I think you guys should just change how you standardly use the cell phone so that the, you don't get this dropping all the time. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, if you've made several million of these, you don't want to say, okay, we'll just throw those away and start all over again. 
yeah. you know, there's a, a substantial expense in doing that. So uh, you try to convince people that uh, they should change their, their behavior. And, of course, you know, as somebody who grew up before computers were around, personal computers, yeah. um, uh, when, when I first got a personal computer, uh, I couldn't type. Yeah. Uh, somebody dumped it in my office, and it sat there for about a month before I went to look at it. And, of course, the first thing I realized, at least now in retrospect, I didn't realize at the time, is I had to rethink the way I did things in order to do that. Uh, one of the problems we used to have back in the mid-'80s was secretaries who were using computers and previously had used typewriters would put hard returns in at the end of every line. Yeah. And, of course, this created documents that were unreadable. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't know that because they had learned a completely different standard, the one associated with a manual typewriter. Right. Yeah. Um, so one of the, I think, most evocative ways that you talk about the way that standards constitute reality and the way that they, these, they sort of bring together what I think of as the natural and normative or the, the social and the natural, um, is you, you talk about, um, you say that standards make metaphors real. Can you t say, tell me a little bit about what you meant by that? Well, probably the best way to, to do that is, is to just give you a simple example. Okay. Um, if you take a scale in a supermarket where you might have meat weighed, mm -hmm. um, the metaphor that is implicit there is that the weight of the meat is the same as the weight that's shown on the scale. Yes. That's that's what the metaphor is. But it's only true if yeah. that scale is regularly checked to ensure that the metaphor holds. Yeah. Because scales get out of balance. Yeah. Even even the best scales get out of balance. Yeah. And so there's a whole elaborate system of people and certificates and special weights that are moved literally around the world to check to see that scales maintain within certain uh certain limits. Uh, the weights that they're supposed to have. And that's also, of course, why, you know, if, if we were weighing diamonds, we wouldn't want to use that scale in the supermarket to weigh the diamonds. Uh, and, uh, and we probably, for that matter, would find the, the precision given in the diamond scale rather useless in weighing meat. Uh, but these are, these are metaphors that are made real. You're, you're saying this is equal to that or is right. the same as that. Yeah. And you're demonstrating that indeed it is. Yeah, so it's about this power of, I guess, identification um, and making alike things or sort of unlike things actually seem alike. Or to use the term that I think you that you use, commensurable, that I think is really revealing. Um, the one, I mean, the thing that, the thing that. The thing that I mean, the power of these things, and the thing that drives the, the most obvious thing that to me that's crazy that people have standardized and sort of had, have clearly made real is credit scores, right? That oh. you can like suddenly you can take someone's life history and turn it into a number, and that is comparable to everybody else's numbers, and it has like clear financial and like sort of lifestyle consequences, right? Uh, absolutely, and you could say the same thing about uh, the use of um, uh, of uh, citation counts in evaluating faculty members at universities, yeah. uh, at research universities. Uh, it, 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 these things become real by virtue of producing the numbers. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the, the, whether the metaphor holds on those things is actually a much more difficult question to answer. 
uh, than it is in the case of, say, the scale with the meat, because we can have an independent way of checking that the scale works properly. Whereas in the case of those credit scores, yeah. uh, they're largely black boxed. You can't tell what's going on behind the scenes. No one's going to give you the, the formula that's used to produce those. In fact, it's likely a trade secret. Yeah. They're proprietary often, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the themes, I mean, and to return to something we've already sort of touched on, um, one of the themes is that, that standards um, affect what we think about and what we don't think about. And I think this addresses kind of the, the broader political uh, engagement of your book because you actually end the book with a, quote, with a quote, or very close to the end. You introduce the conclusion with a, a quote by Hayek, right? Where right. Hayek is talking about, it's in um, The Road to Serfdom, so, and he's talking about the price system, and he likes it because it advances civilization by extending the number of important operations we can perform without thinking about them. Um, standards seem to do the same thing, right? Um, why is it important not to have to think? Well, we're, we're all creatures of habit. And there's a wonderful little book that was written by uh, William James uh, just about a century ago mm -hmm. called Habit. Mm -hmm. and, and what James points out is that um, what habits allow us to do uh, is to focus our attention on what is of concern at the moment rather than having to think about all the things we do. So, for example... Um, a very si somewhat silly example, if I had to think mm -hmm. about walking, mm -hmm. um, I would spend all my time thinking when I was walking, all of, all of my energy would be absorbed with trying to think about, well, now I have to raise my left foot and move it slightly forward and then put it down on the ground and then pick up the right foot and move it slowly forward and put it down on the ground. And it would walking would become a, a virtually uh, impossible task. Um, on a more serious note, uh, by the way, I should note that is serious for people, for example, who've, who for one reason or another lost the ability to walk and have to learn how to do it all over again. Yeah. This is a very difficult task yeah. until you can make it habitual. Yeah. Um, but we're habitual in other ways as well. So, for example, when I get up in the morning on a work day, yeah. I get up at the same time each day. The yeah. alarm clock, which is standardized, tells goes off and it says it's time to go up to get up. And I follow a routine. I take off my pajamas, I go in the shower, I shave, and so on. Now, standards do the same kind of thing on a social or societal level. That is to say, they make it possible for us to forget all the work that goes into standardizing things and people's behavior. So when, when my car has a flat tire and I go to the garage to get it fixed, I don't have to say to myself now, gee, do the people in this garage have the right tools? Do they have the right equipment? Do they have the right skills? Because, in fact, when I go there, <coughs> excuse me, before I go, I already know that these folks have that equipment and tools that will allow them to remove the wheel, to take the tire off the wheel, and to repair it. I also know those people who work there, that work there are properly trained. They're even perhaps certified to follow standard procedures in changing tires. Mm -hmm. And there, of course, are hundreds of standards involved in this process, that are essentially invisible to me, in addition to the ones I just mentioned, uh, standards about uh, about the building. I, I don't have to worry when I go into the garage there that the, the building is going to fall down on top of me because it wasn't made to meet building codes. Uh, I don't have to worry that 
uh, I'm going to fall into a hole on the floor because there's uh, a big sign there that says the work area is, is, is not a place where customers are allowed. Uh, and a whole variety of standards of that sort that make this an orderly and straightforward process. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for all standards. They mm-hmm. are, uh, they allow us to think about and act in other ways and not have to worry about those things unless, as you mentioned earlier, for one reason or another, the standard or standards break down. Yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, I think this is the one of the ways that they're so powerful and that that power is invisible, right? Um, because you, I mean, because there, like you said, there's a huge amount of social work um, and regimentation that is required in anything like repairing or changing a car's tire or repairing a car. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> but one of the things that you do that you do want to say, that you do argue actually um, is that the, the the way that we think about standardized things has changed. Right? And the way that we think about standards and and um, people in particular has changed. So that there, there's this change from a relationship, from thinking about trustworthiness to thinking about to a standardized world being one in which we just rely on sort of predictability. Can you say a little bit about what that what that's about? Well, yeah, there, there's there's two ways of of thinking about the term trust. Okay. Um, at least two ways, perhaps others. Um, but one way is to think of trust. As, uh, as trustworthiness. So, uh-huh. for example, uh, that is to say, someone who is trustworthy is literally worthy of my trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is worthy of, she's trustworthy. She's worthy of my trust. I know that regardless of what happens to me, I know with enormous confidence that she's going to take care of me. She's going to do the right thing. Yeah. It's not to say she can't make mistakes, but that I can trust that regardless of what happens, she's going to be there and be trustworthy. Right. Um, you could probably say something close to that with a little bit more in the way of limitation uh, about uh, a dog. Uh, one of the reasons they talk about dogs, and I'm not, you know, not suggesting my wife is, is to be directly equated with dogs, no. uh, but, but rather one of the reasons why the, the, this notion dog is, is man's best friend right. uh, is because dogs become attached to people, and there are thousands of stories of dogs engaging in behavior that's really quite extraordinary for a canine when something happens to uh, their master. Right. Okay. Now, contrary to that, when we're talking generally about things, yeah, um, things can be trusted. So when I'm going to work in the morning, and I live a fair distance from the university where I work. Um, I get in the car, I get out on the superhighway, and I go about 70 miles an hour all the way there. Okay. And I don't worry that, oh, my gosh, you know, the car's going to fall apart. It's going to, a wheel's going to fall off. It's going to run off the road. Now, of course, all of those things could happen. Yes. But the, chan- the point is that the car that I have is a relatively new model built by a well-known manufacturer, and it's one that is known as a reliable vehicle that I can trust to get me there. Okay? Yeah. There obviously are other vehicles that you probably wouldn't want to trust at that speed or at any great distance. Okay? Yeah. But but those are the, the 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 world is made up of many many things in which we can trust that 
aren't trustworthy right. in the same sense. That is to say, um, uh, we can trust that uh, Stalin was an SOB and did very nasty things. And if somebody told, told me today, well, you know, in addition to all those people you know who were in the gulag, there were 50,000 more over there, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. Right. Okay. So I can trust Stalin in that sense. But Stalin certainly wasn't trustworthy. In fact, he was known as somebody who could turn on his friends almost in an instance if he felt threatened. Right. Okay. So I think the key here is that standards produce trust in that mechanical sense. They don't produce trustworthiness. Okay. Okay. And I think that's an important thing to understand about standards. Uh, we, we have to rely on standards. We can't do without them. Yeah. But, but they don't produce trustworthiness. They produce trust only in the sense of reliability and consistency. Yeah. And you see this. I mean, I think one of the things that's – I mean, there's a historical sweep to your story, and I think we'll talk about that in a second. But I think one of the big historical changes you want to point to is the way that, you know, Perhaps in the past, perhaps in a mythical past, we had all these relationships with people that were ba that, that were based or that in which trustworthiness was sort of the key credible epistemic or credibility relationships that, that existed between them. Um, and we're, we're increasingly surrounded by relationships with other people in which we don't think about their trustworthiness. We think about them in this mechanical, predictable way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If 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 we were living, say, a century and a half ago, and uh, we went into the local general store, yeah, we would probably know that person by name. Yeah. That person would probably have extended us credit if we were a little short on cash that week. Uh, that person uh, might have uh, just given us uh, a little extra uh, just because uh, he 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 or she wanted to be nice. Yeah. Um, in contrast, uh, today. Uh, when I go into the supermarket, I don't even have to pay any. In fact, I don't even have to go past a cashier. I can go to one of these checkout machines, machines yeah. and I don't have to see anyone while I'm in the supermarket, even though the supermarket is crowded. Yeah. Right. So what I there we have trust. I trust that the other people in the supermarket aren't going to likely be to, to want to rob me. Uh, I trust that the people have stocked the shelves with products that I will recognize and that they haven't stuffed uh uh, poison in the cereal box, um, and I, I, I trust that the machine that checks me out of the supermarket is reading the right prices. Okay, but there's no trustworthiness in that at all. It's it's strictly a mechanical kind of of trust. Yeah, and I guess so. This brings to light kind of a difference, and and that is this. I mean, I guess when I'm when I have a relationship of trustworthiness with people, I think often it's because. I recognize some kind of loyalty between them and I or some commonality of interest. That, like I really I genuinely believe that they have my interest at heart. Right. And I don't really believe that necessarily of grocery stores uh, or of the cereal, the cereal producer. Not like I don't believe that they don't you know, put rat poison into the food because they have my best interest at heart. I think I do, they do that because there's institutional checks on them and there would be bad consequences for them if they did that. Um, I, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I think the the uh, in fact in one of my other hats I've done research on supermarkets. Okay. And and one of the jokes that I I tell to my economist friends yep. is that what supermarkets desperately want is to be loved. <laughs> uh, and the problem, of course, is that the way that supermarkets are set up makes loving having a loving relationship extremely difficult. 
but but if you look at the kind of advertising, right, uh, as well as store arrangements in supermarkets, yeah. uh, supermarkets work very very hard to give one the illusion of trustworthiness, of loyalty, yeah. of 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 more than mere reliability. Yeah. And and the only ones that really succeed in this are the very very upscale supermarkets, which can afford to have sufficient staff relative to to, to consumers. Yeah. Uh, that that indeed personal relationships can be developed. Yeah. But but most of us can't afford to shop in those places. No, yeah. So there's a class, you know, there's certain classes that get access to trustworthiness and others don't sort of is what, I mean, this is one thing that you bring up as well. Sure. Sure. Uh-huh. I mean, if, if, if you are wealthy enough to have your personal concierge, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you can be assured that person is going to buy just the present that your wife or girlfriend or, or daughter or whomever would like. Yeah. Uh, but you have a one-on-one relationship with that person. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think, the other place this happens is in. I mean, do, do you have have you seen evidence of this happening in, in places where, you know, there's a very strong, I guess, transition to um, a mechanical form of objectivity. So when I'm thinking about medicine, right? Because like your relationship with your doctor um, is both one is one in which you have kind of have to have a trustworthy relationship, but at the same time, there's an incredible amount of um, standardization. Acting both upon the doctor um, and upon the doc, the things that the doctor is prescribing to you, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But I think one of the things that's very clear in the medical literature is yeah. that if you remove the trustworthiness, right, the whole relationship falls apart. That that while it's certainly true that um, that medicine requires both that kind of mechanical uh, trust. Yeah. In all the enormous amounts of gadgetry that medicine uses these days, yeah. some some with extraordinary success, I should add. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have that confidence that this person has my interests at heart and isn't just doing this in a mechanical way, yeah. um, uh, you're you're likely to be at the very least petrified uh, of what's going to happen to you. Uh, and uh, and I would argue that uh, such relationships are not. A, good relationships for the medical world. Those are medical relations, relations with lawyers, relations mm-hmm. relations with teachers, for that matter. These tend to be relationships which need to have a very personal element to them. And if they're, if they're purely mechanical, yeah. uh, there's a, a tremendous amount that gets lost. Yeah. So it's interesting to me very that so often I've seen when people are dissatisfied with these kind of relationships with um, teachers or doctors in which, you know, they don't feel like there's a, they're trustworthy or that they have their interest at heart. There's this, people try and attempt to have a, a recourse to mechanical modes of um, credibility or sort of a predictability as, as though thinking that that imposing that would make the, make would sort of guarantee that this, this the relationship would be better. Well, it, it perhaps it, it may not make it better, but yeah. it, it maybe perhaps limits the harm that could be done. Yeah, uh, it's one of the reasons why we 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 have very detailed legal frameworks for approval of medical equipment and drugs. Right. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, we have standards of good medical practice 
and and the the uh, the, the, the surgeon uh, who operates on you in a non-standard way and causes harm is is liable in court for not using good medical practice, good surgical practices. Yeah, for sure. But I wonder. I mean, so I've heard that there's sort of a conflict between. I mean, I think those 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 standards set up some sort of a minimum criteria, but there is also conflict between things like evidence-based medicine and professional discernment, right, or professional discretion. Perhaps a little bit less there, because I think one thing about evidence-based medicine is that it doesn't say what evidence you use. It doesn't say how you should interpret that evidence. It simply says, don't just do it because it's been done in the past. So if, if leeches seem to, to, uh, to, to uh, eliminate disease uh, because we've done it in the past, yeah. uh, that's not a really good idea to continue to do that. Uh, better find some evidence okay. that leeches are a good, uh, a good thing to use. And I guess just having been used in the past does not count as evidence in this case. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. Let's uh, get to the past, because I think you do, I mean, like I said, you, there's this historical narrative and there's this story about forces that are pushing both towards standardization and away from standardization that have their peaks um, at different sort of historical moments. Uh, one of the sort of key time periods is, is the turn of the 20th century, it seems like. Um, so in the late 19th century, there's all these scientific, international scientific organizations that are getting together and agreeing upon international standards. Um, I think, is it in 1901 that the United Kingdom sets up its standard bureau? I think it's 1903 that that the, in the United States, the National Bureau of Standards is founded. Mm -hmm. So why is sort of this turn of the late turn, the long turn of the 20th century, as some historians like to call it, such a crucial period? Well, I think, as, as you suggest, standards have been around for a very, very long time. Standards for, for things like bricks. Yep. Uh, you can look at the, the temples of Babylon and they were made of very highly standardized, uh, bricks. Okay. Uh, but, but these were exceptions, the, yep. the things that were standardized. What, what I think happens in the late 19th century, um, and I think arguably as a growth on the one hand of the, uh, I'm sorry, as a result, on the one hand of a growth of technoscience, yeah. and on the other hand of long distance trade in industrial objects. Yeah. Um, remember, this is also the time when the steamship becomes available, so trading heavy things over long distances becomes a lot cheaper mm-hmm. uh, than it had been prior to that. When this, become, when this becomes possible, it becomes obvious to many people that standards are needed. Okay. Um, things that would be only done close to home might have a very local standard. Uh, during the entire Middle Ages, for example, there were thousands of local standards for uh, bushels, for yeah. example. But each each little village had its own standard. Yeah. Uh, well, once trade and and science become fairly commonplace in the Western world, especially, yeah. um, the need for standards that go beyond a little village become critical. And uh, as a result of that, you see an explosion of standards um, as well as books and articles published about the benefits of standards and standardization starting roughly in the late 19th century. Um, And uh, as an example, consider railways. Yes. Uh, When railways were first built, the belief, which to our our, our eyes seems almost humorous, the belief was that stand, that, that, that railways would merely bring goods to the nearest port or canal where they would be transferred onto a ship and go the rest of the way. 
As railways were developed, it became clear that they could actually replace many river ports and canals. Um, I, uh, for, for a couple of years, I lived in Lancaster in England. Okay. And uh, there's a canal that goes through Lancaster, and it was one of the very last canals built. By the time it was completed, it was almost useless. Oh. Uh, and the reason it was useless was because the railways came. Just made it obsolete. And the railways – pardon? They just made it obsolete. That's right. They made it obsolete. It, it allowed – First of all, it allows goods to be moved at a much higher speed yeah. over much longer distances with a lot less in the way of transshipment where you had to unload and load things constantly. Right. Now, as the railroads were connected, of course, they discovered immediately that you had different gauges of track yeah. as well as different ways of building the track beds. Yeah. And these hampered linking the railroads. Right. So in, in Europe, but also in the United States, for example – the, it was the, in the U.S. It was the Transcontinental Railroad uh, that was built to a gauge that became the standard gauge over the next half century, making a national rail system in the United States possible. Prior to that, there were dozens of gauges, yeah. so you couldn't have a, a national system. But the very fact that you now had a line that went all the way across the country meant that all the railroads wanted to connect to that line. And they wanted to do it in a way that didn't involve having to empty the cars on one track and put yeah. them on another track. And that meant change the gauge. And so what you find at that period is, is this incredible enthusiasm for standardization. Uh, it was going to be the, the solution to all kinds of problems. It was going to and, – and the notion was that, that there was a best way to do everything. You also see this in – Somewhat later, in, in around 1911, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, with with Frederick uh, uh, Winslow Taylor, uh, Taylor's yes. Taylor, exactly yeah. Taylor's notion that oh. you could measure work and come up with the best, the single yeah. best way to standardize all work. Yeah, his one best way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about just this increase in scale that everything has at that time period, kind of as a consequence of, of industrialization, I guess. Um, but, the, I mean, the appeal of this, it seems like it also crosses ideology um, and politics so that you have people enthusiastic about um, standardization, you know, on the left and on the right, and even in sort of in communist countries, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lenin was a great fan of Taylor. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, he saw – well, he also made the line that, uh, you know, uh, socialism was merely capitalism made to serve the people. So for Lenin, this, this wasn't terribly surprising. You just took everything capitalism had and you had – instead you said instead of private ownership, we'll have state ownership. And, and there it is. All the problems are solved. Right. Um, in retrospect, this seems rather naive, but, of course, only in retrospect. Yeah. I think um – Stalin is also a huge fan of Ford. And I think mm -hmm. there's, yeah, there's some quote somewhere where he says something like, Soviet communism is Fordism plus electrification. Um, I believe that's right. And that's yes. like just sort of how profound their, their, their faith is in. Uh, well, and, and, and Stalin also bought yeah. a complete Ford plant from oh, Ford yeah. that was obsolete yeah. uh, to make vehicles that were essentially completely identical to the Fords yeah. in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yeah. So at the same time as you have kind of this huge momentum towards standardization, you also have kind of resistances to um, standardization that I think um, you sort of identify as being more historically evident slightly later. Um, so what what is driving um, towards what what are drive what is what's driving I guess social life towards 
um, non-standardization or what makes standardization difficult, or on, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, like um, what you call standardized differentiation, right? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think it's important to say that standardization worked very well and continues to work very well for some products and processes. Right. And uh, and it would be a mistake to, to ignore that. There, there are still new forms of standardization that emerge even today. Um, so, for example, I mentioned USB ports earlier. Um, yeah. Every computer you buy has got a USB port on it. doesn't make any difference what brand, what make, what model. Yeah. All have USB ports. And, and that's necessary to the rest of the infrastructure. The same would go for... Um, uh, shipping containers. Yes. Shipping containers now are standardized worldwide. Yeah. Um, they're all um, identical within certain parameters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if it weren't for that, the cost of imported goods would be much higher than it is. You have a fantastic analysis of uh, shipping t- containers and the way they change everything, including sort of packaging. Um, Absolutely. In the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it, it seems to me that, that there's a, an interesting thing about standardization using standards to standardize. And that is that on the one hand, it's very useful to monopolies yes. because it means that you get the most efficient production. You, you figure out what's going to be most efficient for you as a monopoly, and that's what you do. Yeah. And at the same time, it encourages the formation of monopolies because it reduces the cost of production in a way that makes competition solely price competition. Right. And since competition becomes solely price competition, you wind up with a few large firms that basically control every industry. And this is what the turn of the century trust busting movement was all about. Right. It was with a concern that too much power was getting tied up in a handful of firms owned by a very small number of people and that this was not good for the economy. Because, of course, once you have that kind of monopolization, these folks could also set their own prices. And they routinely did. And they routinely Supposedly, did. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, was not for, it was not for no reason that uh, they were called the robber barons. Right. Um, now, um, in contrast to that, standard, what I call standardized differentiation, and let me explain briefly that what I mean by that is not a reversion to craft production, where everything is different, but rather having products that are differentiated and standardized at the same time. And the examples I use uh, would be Heinz's 57 varieties of pickles and General Motors' segmentation of the auto market. These were two early and very successful attempts at standardized differentiation, and they allowed competition on multiple dimensions. This included, for example, numerous product qualities, the, the packaging of the product, the warranties that you might give for the project product. Uh, in the case of automobiles, obviously, you might give a one- or a three-year warranty. In the case of uh, the pickles, you might give a money-back warranty. Um, and it also allows markets then to be differentiated in the sense of being sliced into ever smaller pieces catering to different consumers. So even as introductory economics textbooks continue to talk about the market, mm-hmm. this idealized world in which there is almost entirely price competition and no other kind, in fact, the economy is largely based, the global economy mm-hmm. is largely based on standardized differentiation with the exception of, uh, shall we say, basic commodities. And in fact, 
you have uh, somebody like Jeffrey Immelt, Immelt the uh, CEO of General Electric, yeah. uh, coming out some years ago and saying uh, the reason why you want to innovate is to avoid commodity hell. In right. other words, right. you don't want to have a product that's identical to the one that that other company is selling. And I think that's the reason why you see this shift towards standardized differentiation. It's 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 a a, a, a real fear on the part of companies that price competition will drive most of them out of business and and essentially reduce profits to, to near zero. So this is this drive basically from within capital that you know market segmentation is just more much more profitable than. Um, a thoroughgoing standardization. Sure. If I if I want to buy a car, for example, yeah. or for that matter, if even I want to buy a toaster, uh, there there are hundreds of models and makes. Yeah. And while I can compare solely on price, they're not really comparable by price. I can't compare a uh, uh, a Yugo with uh, with a high end Mercedes. Um, I can I'm, obviously the Yugo is going to be a lot cheaper, uh, but it's also not the same car. It's not the same product. You also tell this great story about going um, to a sorghum market in the Sudan and, it, and about the difficulty there of, um, of standardizing. Um, and I guess I think the, the broader lesson is that, that there's a lot of there can be inherent. We can think things are standardizable. And actually, there's a lot of resistance from the stuff itself um, and from the circumstances of the people interested in standardizing to standardize. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, the market that I was talking about just happened to be one that stuck in my head. Okay. Um, I've spent uh, a lot of my career wandering around various uh, uh, parts of the world and and observing things in farmers' fields and at and at, at markets. Yeah. Uh, and I think the the thing about um, about that particular market was it was the place where it hit me that you had several hundred people in that marketplace. Uh, all of them were selling uh, grain sorghum. Uh, it was of various colors. Uh, some of it was very clean. Some of it was obviously quite dirty. Uh, some of it was clearly somewhat insect infected. Some of it obviously had some sort of uh, plant disease on the kernels. Uh, and uh, and then on top of that, uh, each each person in the market had some sort of big enameled bowl full of sorghum, uh, in which they which they would scoop sorghum out of. And they used tin cans yeah. of various sizes and shapes to scoop the sorghum out. Yeah. And some of them sold uh, level tin can fulls, some rounded tin can fulls, and some heaping tin, tin can fulls. Now, you could ask, and uh, a hypothetical, very naive economist might walk into that marketplace and say, well, uh, what's the price of sorghum? And uh, it would be extremely difficult to figure out what the price of sorghum was because yeah. here you have a case where – uh, other than the currency, almost everything in the market was unstandardized. Right. Um, and and so the idea of talking about the market price right. was almost meaningless. Right. And I think what that suggests is that um, modern markets have at least four properties uh, that are standardized. And those are the quality of the item that's being sold, right. the, a measure of quantity that is standardized, right. um, prices that are standardized, that is to say the price is, is in the form of a money price, 
Yep. That's, and I'm sorry, go ahead. That's the same across the board. Absolutely. And the currency is standardized yeah. in the sense that it's not inflating at the rate of 50% a day. Right. As, of course, has been a problem in many parts of the world at many right. times. Right. So without those four things being standardized, what we understand as the market price is essentially, I think, essentially impossible to calculate. Right. And I guess I, I think, I mean, I tend to, I mean, I think that the, the Sudan, this market example is kind of extreme, but I don't think it's atypical. I think that there's actually probably more variation in things that look like they're standardized than we actually think there are, than there is at first glance. Well, I, I think you're right about yeah. there being variation of things that look like they're standardized, but yeah. I think a lot of that is is that the things that look like they're standardized and aren't quite – when you say that things are the same, yes, you don't mean that they're absolutely identical. Right. What you mean is that for the purposes at hand, yeah. they are the same. Yeah. And lots of things are sufficiently standardized that for the purposes at hand – they're the same. So if I go to the supermarket and buy a quart of milk, I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at the various milk containers of that brand of milk that I'm buying. I just pick one off the shelf. And if the milk doesn't start to pour out of the bottom of it because somebody broke it, right. I stick it in my shopping cart and move on. Right. Okay. And if you look carefully, of course, you might find that the label on one is on slightly crooked and that uh, uh, one of them is slightly more filled to the top than the other one is and so on. Um, but those are meaningless distinctions for purposes of talking about whether something is the same in that context. Right. But I get uh, – I, I mean, I think there is an issue about – I mean, the price differences, right? So that, you, so that not – the, the, the price of a gallon of milk is, in fact, not the same at Costco as it is in your neighborhood bodega, right? So mm -hmm. even determining the price of something like milk um, is not as easy as it might look. Um, without no, but the it, price, with, it's still, we know that, that if it's the price of, say, grade A whole milk, which yeah. is most of the whole milk that's sold, yeah. we know at least what we're comparing there. The prices, the comparison is right. a price comparison. Right. Yeah. Um, so the so the last historical phase is sort of the, our contemporary present, which you you talk about um, as I think quite rightly the triumph of neoliberalism, um, and what's distinctive about it from the point of view of standards? Okay, well the neoliberal regime at which we current in which we under which we currently live was developed by people like F. A. Hayek and Milton Friedman and their followers. Yeah, and we don't need to go into the details of how that occurred. Other people have written on that subject quite well. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me that these folks had an unabiding faith in the market. And at the same time, they were convinced that the older, laissez-faire approach to the market, the kind taken by uh, uh, economists in the 19th century, uh, was inadequate in the face of communism, Nazism, and other authoritarian regimes. So they made the argument that government should not merely leave markets alone, but that governments should be redesigned to promote markets, to turn everything into markets or market-like institutions. Mm -hmm. Now, what they ignored, and I think we're utterly oblivious to, mm -hmm. is that governance is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that is to say, since we're neither autonomous individuals nor fully socialized beings, 
That is to say, on the one hand, uh, we, we, we don't act in, in an entirely, ever an entirely individual manner. And on the other hand, we don't, we're not like, uh, say, uh, bees, which are essentially fully socialized. Uh, if given the right chemical signals, they, they all do the same things. Uh, so governance as a result of that is inescapable. And if governments don't govern, then others will. So if the government doesn't make adequate regulations, then corporations, among others, will be happy to step in and make standards that are imposed on suppliers, on workers, and on consumers. And a good example of this is the event that led to the financial crisis. Here you had financial institutions with, which were rather weakly regulated. The regulations that had been in place from the Roosevelt era were gradually removed. And as a result, all sorts of financial instruments, highly standardized financial instruments, were developed that proved, for all practical purposes, bogus. Now, to put this slightly differently, think of it this way. You can say, then, that the, the recent explosion of standards is in large part the result of the failure of neoliberals to understand that a reduction in the size and scope of government merely gives others who are less accountable greater control over our lives. Furthermore, markets only exist when they're allowed to exist by virtue of laws, corporate law, anti-fraud law, contract law, intellectual property law, and so on. Without those laws, there are markets are essentially impossible to make and to enforce. You have to have those laws. So in a certain sense, the very distinction at the heart of neoliberalism between state and market is a false one. Or the mis or I guess a misplaced one. Um, yeah, so your characterization of this is sort of is the tripartite um, regime, I think, that blossoms mm-hmm. under neoliberalism. Um, although it has older, it has sort of older roots. I think in, in the United States is particularly experimental in this, just in the set, and, and it's particularly in like the looking at the financial crisis of, of 2008, right? Um, if we think about the role of the ratings agencies and the AAA rating that they gave to all of these financial devices, those were not, I mean, it's interesting that the United States never assumed a federal role and left it to these supposedly, you know, independent free market agencies to do that. Um, but also that there haven't really been any consequences um, for the system of accreditation given apparently the clear failure of them um, in 2008, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think in a certain sense, it's sort of astonishing. Uh, but yes, I, w- one of the things that I argue in the book there, and, and I must say the term tripartite standards regime yeah. was, was developed by my colleague John Stone, not by me. Okay. But, but the argument I make is that basically we have three parts to this. You have standard, the creation of lots and lots of standards development organizations, mm-hmm. lots and lots of accreditation agencies who accredit certifiers, and lots and lots of certifiers who accredit, or sorry, who certify companies uh, or or individuals as having met certain requirements that are embedded in the standards. Yeah. This, if you wish, is a kind of shadow government, not in the sense that's typically understood, say, in the British political system, but a shadow government in the sense that this creates a kind of worldwide governmental body mm-hmm. that's outside the sphere of government. Yeah, official government. That's right. Accountable governments. That's well. It's it's not completely unaccountable, and again, it relies on the existence of all these legal frameworks. Yeah. Without that, it it couldn't exist. Yeah. Um. But at the same time, it seems to me that it's fraught with various kinds of conflicts of interest. 
One of the most recent examples is one which you may have heard about, uh, which has been at least discussed in the U.S. press, much more so in Europe, was this scandal having to do with breast implants. Uh, and here we had a, a French company, I forgot the name of it off the top of my head, but a French company that was using industrial-grade silicon instead of medical-grade silicon to make these breast implants. Okay. And it was certified as meeting all the necessary requirements by a private certifier who it paid to certify it. And this is the crux of the issue. The Just as the, uh, as the bank's financial situation was, uh, was uh, certified by accounting firms that were paid by the banks to certify them, so this company was certified to be producing breast implants to the proper standards. Right. And you could see this in, in food industry, you see this in the medical sector, you see this across the board of instances in which the income that certifiers derive is from the people who they certify. And hence there is a, a built-in conflict of interest in the system uh, of, of governance yeah. that says if you don't certify these folks, you're going to lose them as a client. Yeah. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, you yeah. cut that out. It's <laughs> okay. We're cu- we're running out of time, but I, I want to like let people know that actually the la- sort of the the latter part of the book is a really clear and I think interesting engagement with the politics of this and, and with the ethics of the standardization regime. Um, since we have taken up so much of your time, though, why don't you just tell us uh, what you're working on now? Okay. Um, currently, I'm I'm pursuing this interest in uh, the in neoliberalism, and I'm trying to look at neoliberalism not in the way that many other of my colleagues look at it, uh, that is to say, as a reigning ideology, uh, but to look at neoliberalism as simultaneously a uh, a kind of economic science and a set of normative prescriptions as to how society should look. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm currently writing the volume. Uh, it's tentatively titled um, uh, Real Myths, False Truths. And it, it takes off from the line in Foucault that I actually cited at the beginning of the standards book. And uh, and that line is, uh, is, is, is Foucault's notion uh, that he wants to show how a particular regime of truth and therefore not an error makes something that does not exist able to become something. That is to say, what's fascinating about neoliberalism to me is how it started with a set of philosophical and theoretical arguments mm-hmm. backed up actually by not terribly much on the empirical side, yeah. but, a, but a tremendous amount of, of, shall we say, deep thinking. Uh-huh. And it then managed over a period of about 30 years, its, its practitioners managed to make it into a reality. Yeah. And what I want to do is to produce this volume in a way that it's accessible to the general public, right. uh, not just to the science studies community, right. uh, but looks at how, for example, how the concept of the market works beautifully in introductory economics textbooks, but completely falls apart when you actually look 
at individual markets. So if you compare, say, the farmer's market to the stock market to the real estate market, you quickly realize right. that the frames in which these markets operate are radically different. Right. And the nature of the transactions are radically different. And and I want to go through all of these uh, myths, many of which, not all of which, many of which are of neoliberal origin, and show how they become real in the sense that we've come to believe them and, and to act accordingly, but that in fact they are false truths. No, that sounds fascinating and I think sorely needed um, to, I mean, to have more sophistication about our, our economic thinking. And I like the way that you're sort of bringing together the natural and the normative in the same way that you did in this book. Um, sounds vaguely horrifying that you could just sort of create a whole world of neoliberalism, um, actually, to tell you the truth. Thanks very much, Larry. That was my conversation with Larry Bush, the author of Standards, Recipes for Reality. As I mentioned in the, in the interview, there's a lot more in the book that we didn't get to talk about. Bush talks about the sources of normativity, the political implications of standards, um, and he assesses attempts to standardize political decision-making through co- things like cost-benefit analysis and risk assessments. Thanks for listening. I'm Patrick Slaney for the New Books Network, Science, Technology, and Society page.